Welcome to the Gottesdienst crowd, where we foster confessional integrity, liturgical preservation, and preaching that doesn't stink. We believe that the historic liturgy of the divine service is more than mere cobwebs of antiquity, but it is a true treasure of the church to be dusted off and brought down from her attic to be enjoyed. So let's get dusting. My goal here today is really to get you guys to begin to look at difficulty in your life in a different way, in a slightly different manner, so that so that you don't become weighed down. And that's how we feel, isn't it? We feel weighed down to the point where we become inactive. Like all we want to do is sit because everything seems so heavy. We are just weighed down. And so the goal here is for you to get a different picture of them, a different kind of framework in dealing with them uh, so that you can handle them biblically uh, and you can be encouraged by what God actually has in store for those things. This all came about really uh, because of the great apocalypse of 2020. Um, that was a great time of being weighed down. It's like it seemed as though, and, and maybe you guys can correct me in the questions and answers, but it seemed as though no matter what you did, what no matter what decision you made, it was wrong. Like wherever you turned, you were being pushed back into this corner or to that corner. You couldn't go anywhere and not be confronted with someone that hated what you were doing or what was going on. And you were inside this echo chamber of complaining or of the world is coming to an end. And that weighs us down. In the summer of 2020, I happened to come across an article in the weekend edition of the Wall Street Journal. The Wall Street Journal, they always have just one weekend paper. And in that journal, that weekend edition, they always interview someone. They have some interview from a business person or sometimes a celebrity or whatever. Well, they interviewed Stephen Tanger. He is the CEO of Tanger Outlet Malls. If you go anywhere to any destination spot, you're going to run into a Tanger outlet. My small town used to have a Tanger outlet, uh, but it's pretty much closed down now because of, well, 2020 and other events. But the point of this is I read this article and it was all about how Tanger Corporation was going to respond to the crisis of 2020, whether it was COVID or anything. And he said something in that article that just stopped me in my tracks. He said, crises don't build character, they reveal it. And that was kind of like the ghosts of Christmas past, present, and future coming to my door in one sentence. 
crises don't don't build character, they reveal character. Now we're used to looking at Romans chapter 5 and everything that suffering builds, right? Suffering builds endurance and endurance, strength and strength, hope, and hope doesn't put us to shame. So I don't want to discount that. And I don't think Tanger was either. I think Tanger was getting at something that we skip over, which is the first thing that difficulty does to us is it shows us what bare character we have. What's the raw material we have right then and there? It shows us what we're currently working with. It puts on display our current mindset, like how we view things. It shows us our knee-jerk reaction to whatever comes in our path. And for me, it revealed that I was getting stuck and weighed down by all of these external things that I had no control over, and I was trying to manage situations. Like, I was just trying to respond instead of stepping forward in faith and not responding, but leading. Controlling the only thing that I could actually control, which was me. Doing what I was given to do. Being who God desired me to be. So instead of just thinking about how will this be viewed, what will happen, what will I have to deal with after I do this or do that, I began to just focus on what was right, not what was easy. And we're going to come back to that because I think most of the time our choices are not between what is right and what is wrong, what is good or what is bad, but between what is right and good and what is easy. So what this article did for me was it really brought into perspective, kind of opened my eyes to see who I was, what my character actually was in that point in time. And I began to think about then other difficulties that I had faced And, you know, the same character was there. The character was, why me? Why now? Can't anything go right? Now, I don't own my own home, but I like to do as much work on it as I can. Uh, I like to work in a wood shop. I like to build things with wood. Now, if any of you have owned your own home and you start a project, you think it's going to go great until you start the project. And then it all goes down the tubes, right? Because you find this and you find that. Now, when that happened to me, my first thing to say would be, can't anything be easy? Can't it just go the way I want it to go? 
that was the character. Now, it's one thing to think, you know, like, can't anything be easy? Uh, no, it can't because, you know, we're, this is not where we live. But I was mad at that. I got mad. I wasn't looking at things rightly. I wasn't looking at that as an opportunity. Either to learn or to grow, to get better at this thing or that thing. I just saw it as it's putting a wrench in my day. Or it's making me work harder. And I just got mad. And I think... 2020 brought that to brought it into focus for a lot of people as all the things that they couldn't control they just got mad and that built up and built up and we took it out on all the wrong people and didn't take it out on the right people and didn't even seek to find a way to deal with the person within. So that being weighed down, that being that that feeling of you're stuck and you can't do anything about it. This is how almost all of the church fathers, the ancient theologians, this is how they describe sloth. One of the seven deadly sins. Sometimes it's called acedia. Sometimes it's called acadia, depending on whether you're looking at the Latin or the Greek. But we know it as sloth. And the problem with sloth, when you're looking at the history of the church fathers describing what this is, even Luther, is the definitions are so varied. They can't agree on what it means. So Luther will talk about it as kind of like a, a melancholy, a depression, where you're just in this kind of slow sadness over everything. It's the kind of sadness when you wake up and it's like, you wonder, why don't I do what I always used to be able to do? Why can't I accomplish what I used to accomplish? And then it's just like this cyclical, or snowballing effect of sadness over that and sadness over this because I'm not doing and being the kind of person that I can remember I used to be. Where you feel stuck in there. Some of them refer to it just as laziness. Like that you're, you're just lazy, you're indolent, you're recalcitrant, you're slow in things. You don't have energy. So you have this wide spectrum. And I don't want to go into what I think it is, because uh, I, I don't think it really matters. I think sloth is a spectrum. Just like every sin. Like every sin has a life in one man that's different in another man. 
one man struggles with lust in one particular way and another man in a different. It's the same sin, but it has life in them differently. I think this is the way it works also with sloth, that it has life in us in different ways so that for some of us, we're just lazy. For some of us, we have a melancholy over what we used to be able to do and can't do anymore. Some of it is those things together, right? Where we're stuck because we don't want, we're the sluggard. We're the sluggard in Proverbs that is either afraid to go out because a lion might get them or is just so tired he puts his hand in the bowl and can't bring his, the food up to his mouth. But some of it is just a sadness, a sadness of not being able to do what I always wanted to do. So I don't think exactly we have to pinpoint what sloth means. It's on this spectrum. The word sloth, though, does refer to a slew, like where pigs live. And because it refers to that, if you think about how a pig lives in a slew, it's the place where things get bogged down. Things get weighed down. Things are heavy. And when you walk through mud, you have to slow down. Probably up here it's snow. Deep snow. But the point is you, you get bogged down. And it's difficult to get through. So if you keep that image in terms of the difficulty of getting through something, the getting bogged down and weighed down because it's hard to lift your feet and move in that slew. If you keep that image throughout these presentations, I think you will be helped by when we begin talking about what the difficulties, what the things that weigh us down, bog us down, and how to counteract them. So despite the fact that we're not really trying to define exactly what sloth is, I'm going to ask you guys to do that for yourselves. How does it have life in your life? we are going to look at what is common to all of it, which is what our response, what sloth is a response to. Sloth is primarily a, a response to perceived pain. And whenever we have pain, we infer death. And so sloth is the anticipation of pain. And so we want to avoid it. Sloth tries to teach us wrongly that the best response to pain is inaction it wrongly 
tries to teach us that the best response to pain is to do nothing. To try to avoid it at all costs. And that's what Proverbs teaches us, what the sluggard does. But it really brings to the forefront an anti-Christ ideal. That is to say that there is no eternal life without the suffering and death of Jesus Christ. He goes through suffering and death in order to gain for us that most inexpressible gift. So whether your pain is physical or emotional or mental, if it is imagined or if it's actually real, sloth wants you to try to find a way to dull it. It does not want you to embrace it. And so it is going to seek any way that it can to get you to not notice, avoid, and get rid of that pain. C.S. Lewis in The Problem of Pain says that pain is a universal language. We can often ignore our pleasures, he says. But pain insists upon being attended to. That God whispers to us in our pleasures. He speaks in our conscience, but he shouts in our pains. It is his megaphone to rouse a deaf world. It sounds like pain's important to God. That it's not something to be avoided. It's not something to dull. It's not something to put to the side. But it's something to listen to. And to let it show you something. Crises, crises don't build character, they reveal it. What does your pain reveal about you? What does your trying to avoid enduring those difficulties reveal about you? Are we Epicureans? That is, are we trying to avoid pain at all costs? in order to fill our lives with pleasure, or even perhaps not just pleasure, but with something that will take our mind off of the difficulties that we have? Or do we desire to be like Christ, who for the joy that was set down before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the Father? Those are two stark contrasts. And so the two things that we do when pain hits, when difficulty 
when anguish, when we feel weighed down. The two things that we do are that we either respond by distracting ourselves or we respond with indifference, a giving up. Both of these are two ends of the flight in the fight or flight physiological response that we want to flee from, hide from, dull whatever difficulties or pains that we're going through. So the first one is distraction. We think that if we distract ourselves with other things, the thing itself can be evaded and avoided. And so we busy ourselves. We do lots and lots of stuff in order to take our mind off of what lay ahead. So like, consider Uh, Consider when you have a big project to do or something uncomfortable to do. How often is it the case that you come up in your mind with something else that needs to be done first? That has nothing to do with the thing that you must get done. So we do lots of things to take our mind off of it. It can even be good things. So, for example, in prepping for this, I could always come up with a reason to do something else as a pastor that was easier so that I didn't have to face the fact that I have three hours worth of presentation material to come up with. You know all of the things that you avoid doing and what you do to give you an excuse to distract yourselves from doing it. This could be even as simple as something like, We all have someone in our life, sometimes it's a son or a daughter, sometimes it's a family member who has gone astray. And we distract ourselves, we use excuses, even our own theology of baptism or surrounding confirmation, and we say, well, I know they're baptized. And we never deal with actually coming to them to continue the conversation about their life as a baptized individual. Right? We let our rich theology end up being an excuse not to do something instead of the very power and reason to do it. So we distract ourselves. While at work, we're thinking about being at home. While at home, when finally home, we think about going back to work. While we're with friends, we desire to be 
alone. When we're alone, we desire to be with friends. We are not happy wherever we're at. We are discontent. And when that discontent comes, that uncomfortability of being at work or being at home, being alone or with friends, when that hits, we want to distract ourselves with something else instead of staying right there and dealing with whatever that emotion is, that feeling is, right then and there. We run from it. And when we run from it, we think that we've dealt with it. But we haven't. It's still there. It's still there. Dorothy Sayers once said of sloth, It is one of the greatest tricks of sloth to dissemble itself under the cover of a whiffling activity of the body. We think that if we are busily rushing around doing things, we cannot be suffering from sloth because we're busy. And besides, violent activity seems to offer an escape from the horrors of sloth. And this is where the other sins hasten to provide a cloak for sloth. Gluttony offers a whirl of dancing and dining and sports and dashing very fast from place to place to gape at beauty spots. I'm going to stop there for a second before I keep reading. In our day, how many of our homes are more like hotels and restaurants that we visit for a brief time so that we can get on to the next thing? How often is it the case that families actually gather around a table to eat a meal together regularly? How often is it the case that they are not hustling and running about to this game and that game or this event and that event. And we tell ourselves we are giving our kids opportunities to be on a team, to learn this or that. Now, I'm a big sports fan, so I'm not putting that down. There are lots of opportunities granted to us in sports. But have we ever stopped to consider the flip side, that we are stealing them away from having the opportunity of having a family, of sitting with mom and dad around a table to hear their wisdom and what they have learned? We're sitting around at night while dad is reading, and there are questions, and you have time to answer them. So gluttony offers us a world of dancing and dining and sports, dashing from place to place to gape at beauty spots. We avoid dealing with what is in front of us. Which when we get to them, we end up defiling with vulgarity and waste. Covetousness 
rakes us out of bed at a very early hour in order that we may put pep and hustle into our business. Envy sets us to gossip and scandal, to writing cantankerous letters to papers, and the unearthing of secrets and the scavenging of dustbins. Of course, we're not writing letters now. We're making posts on social media and constant complaining. So instead of dealing with us, we're just complaining about what we see. It's always someone else's fault. But even if it is, does that really take away any responsibility? Wrath. Wrath provides, very ingeniously, the argument that the only fitting activity in a world so full of evildoers and evil demons is to curse loudly and incessantly at the world. While lust provides that round of dreary promiscuity that passes for bodily vigor. But these are, she says, all disguises for the empty heart and the empty brain and the empty soul afflicted by sloth. In trying to avoid dealing with it. What all of that ends up being, she's saying, is well-mixed drinks aboard the Titanic. That by not dealing with those things, we are just simply distracting ourselves to talk about, wow, that's a really great Manhattan. Meanwhile, the whole ship is sinking to the bottom of the ocean. And so we run and hide from things, from these things, from our difficulties, from our pains, physical, mental, or emotional, for the things that make us uncomfortable. We run and hide from them to our own peril. What are the things then? What are the things that you distract yourself with. I mentioned that I love to woodwork. I can always find a reason to watch a YouTube on woodworking. I will never do that project. One, I don't have the tools or the time to do that kind of project, but I can spend hours watching someone else do something instead of doing what I'm able with my own kids in the shop. Why? Because that is easier. What are the things then that you distract yourself with? What are the excuses that you can always make to say, and like I said, it can always seem good, what are the excuses you make that I can do this in order to avoid that? And when you have a desire to do those things, stop and think, what am I trying to avoid? What am I trying not to deal with? What are the things that I'm trying to distract myself from? And if you ask yourself this, you will probably begin to find out 
that they are unpleasant things. Things that make you uncomfortable. Things that are difficult. What I'm asking you to do today is just at least begin to think that that's what you're doing. And try to find the things that make you uncomfortable, the things that you find difficult and unpleasant. And don't just distract yourself from them. Don't just try to avoid it. But try to lean in towards them. More about that later. Do you guys have any questions so far about distraction? So the question is, what if someone responds to what I've just said uh, with, I use a distraction in order to give myself strength? Um, well, I, I, would, I would say primarily that distractions don't give us strength. Right? So, for example, um, it gives us strength for more of the distraction. So action on things creates its own energy. I mean, you guys know this. When you start, the hardest part is starting in anything. But once you start, what happens? So one of the hardest things that I've learned is starting a sermon is the hardest thing. Like starting the outline. I could study forever. There's always another book I could read, another article, another search in the Bible I could do. That's a distraction. I'm avoiding doing what is actually coming which is the hard work of putting down an outline. But if I just start, say I say, I'm going to give myself 20 minutes and all I can do is outline. Everything else needs to go away. I shut off my phone, I close my door, and I just start writing an outline. After 20 minutes, I have a pretty decent outline. So what I'm trying to say is a distraction will give us energy, but not for the task we need to do, for the task we're avoiding. And so if you're talking about like, you know, before a workout, I got to listen to some heavy metal to get, you know, pumped. Fine. That's not a distraction. That's part of the thing. But uh, if you're going to do something that is unrelated, because that's more fun, that's easier than this thing, You're not, that's not going to give you the energy to get in. You, in order to have the energy to do it, you actually have to do it. Right? You get, a be, you get to be a better runner by running. You get to be a better uh, person that deals with the difficulties in front of us by dealing with the difficulties. You have to practice those skills. So I'd say usually distraction will give you energy for more of the distraction, not for the thing itself. 
Okay. So the second way that we deal with this is indifference. Now, I think there are two kinds of indifference. There's a hard-hearted indifference and a, a soft indifference. I don't think any of us here are really dealing with the hard-hearted kind. Sayers, again, says, the hard-hearted indifference, the, the sloth in that regard, believes in nothing, cares for nothing, seeks to know nothing, finds purpose in nothing, lives for nothing, and only remains alive because there is nothing that it would die for. I don't think any of us here have that issue. Your presence here alone puts that to bed. But soft indifference, soft indifference where we, it's not that we don't care about anything. It's not that we're not willing to die for anything. But we're not willing to really care for the things that are necessary right then and there. And we use all kinds of mental gymnastics to deal with it. A lot of the literature refers to them as cognitive distortions. And here we rely on our feelings. So emotional reasoning, where we get up and we know that, uh, I know that if I don't work out before noon, it is not gonna happen. I know this. But I can, in my mind, reason emotionally, I just don't feel like it right now. You know, I just don't feel like in the mood to do that. Now, if I didn't feel in the mood to do most of the things that I actually have to do, I would never do anything. We let our feelings guide and interpret reality instead of actions. So emotional reasoning. I don't feel like it. I don't feel pumped up for that. I, it's, it, I, don't, I don't have the, the good feels about it. That kind of emotional reasoning is a kind of indifference toward what it is that we have to do. A duty doesn't care about what you feel. A duty doesn't care about what you feel. It's a duty. It needs to be done. And so we need to learn not to reason emotionally, which is very easy for us to do. The liter literature talks about how our will has an elephant and a rider. That the elephant is all of the feeling all of the emotional side of things. And, you know, elephants are big and bulky, and where they want to go, they go. But he still has a rider. Oftentimes, we let the elephant control the rider instead of the rider controlling the elephant. We don't, we tend to forget that we have a mind and we can tell ourselves what to think and what to do and how to feel about it. And eventually, we end up thinking and feeling and doing with what we tell ourselves to do instead of what we are feeling in that moment. So 
getting grips on emotional reasoning. Don't let your feelings be your guide or the interpretation of your reality. We also catastrophize things. That is, we focus on the worst possible outcome and then we see it as the most probable. So we think the worst possible outcome of this, if I go and talk to my cousin, who at this point is a pagan, if I go talk to my cousin, yeah, he was baptized, he was raised in the church. If I talk to him, he will never want to talk to me again. And I'm just pushing him further away in the church. Or if I do this, If I work out now, I'm going to be sore and tired. And I would rather be sore and tired at night because I've got a whole lot to do during the day. And how easy it is for me to forget that when I actually exercise in the morning, I have more energy throughout the day. We catastrophize focusing on the worst possible outcome, and we see it as the most probable. Or we overgeneralize. We see a problem writ large, a global problem. And all the negatives. And we base it on one incident. Right, so we see that today, this kind of goes along with all or nothing thinking, which I'm going to talk about next. We see, I didn't do this one thing, and so my whole day is ruined. And I'm always like this. I ruin everything. It's almost as if we have forgotten that we live in the forgiveness of sins. It's almost as if we've become kind of papists who are trying to earn some kind of favor with God. And so we catastrophize, we overgeneralize, and we make statements about ourselves or even about others by one incident blowing it way out of proportion. All or nothing thinking, dichotomous thinking, binary thinking, Sometimes it's black and white thinking. I don't like black and white thinking because I do think there are blacks and whites. All or nothing is, well, I slipped up in eating a good lunch. And so now I, I might as well just totally give in and pick out for the rest of the day. Uh, all or nothing is, well, I had this poor performance, and so I might as well never, ever try again. But how many of you, when you're driving, if you take one wrong turn, you say, well, I might as well get more lost? So you see that craziness of that kind of thinking. 
It's one mess up. It's one wrong turn. It's not all or nothing. Those are not the only two options. And what that leads us to is a pattern of thinking and then doing so that we begin to discount positives. We claim that the positive things that we or others do are trivial so that you can maintain a negative judgment about yourself or about others, and particularly about ourselves. So we get ourselves in that snowball, that loop of, well, I didn't do it perfect. I mismeasured this amount in the cookies, and so they probably taste awful. And had you just not said anything, no one would have known the difference. No one would have known. And they would have thanked you for loving them in such a way. So we discount positives and we only focus on the negatives. I've told my people a number of times, 99% of our days go perfectly fine. 99% of our days go perfectly fine. But what do we come home talking about? The one bad thing. It's like a windshield that has one bug on it. 99% of it is clear, but all you can see is the one bug. It seems obvious when you say it out loud, right? When you start talking about these things out loud, it seems so obvious. It is not as obvious when you're in it. And part of coming to grips with these things is to learn to question your immediate knee-jerk reactions, to question them. Am I actually seeing this rightly? And I would even suggest finding someone who does not uh, shrink back from telling you the truth. Mine is my wife. <laughs> She's very good at being brutally honest with me. I wouldn't be nearly the man I am if it weren't for her. Uh, but everyone has somebody who is brutally honest. Find them. Befriend them. They are a help to you. Because we also label we assign global negative traits to ourselves in service of all or nothing thinking. I could never do that. I'm not that kind of person. I'm not a good fill in the blank because I can't do those things. So why would I even try? I'm not this kind of person or I'm that bad kind of person. What you need to focus not on is not the nouns, not even the adjectives, 
bad, good, evil person, smart, stupid. What you need to focus on are the verbs, the effort, the doing. And you should even do this for your children and grandchildren, that when they do something well, you don't say, oh, you're so smart. But you say, you really put, you really put effort into that. That was good. That was a good effort. And even when they fail, if they worked hard, you can say, yeah, I know you didn't, you didn't, you didn't do what you wanted to do. You didn't achieve what you wanted to do. But I was really impressed that you put that much work into it. And that is a win in itself. Not to build them up, but rather not to make them feel good but so that they focus on the verbs and not the nouns. There's just a recent study done, and this was, this was dumbfounding to me. They took two groups of people, and they gave them all the same tests. And uh, one group, if they did well, they said, you're so smart. And in the other group, they said, you did a good job. They focused on praising effort in one group and focused on the nouns, the smartness in the other group. In the long haul, the people who were praised for their effort, for their diligence in the work, far outperformed the people who were told they were smart. Because the people that were told they were smart always ended up choosing the easy things so they could get the reward of being heard that they were smart. The people who were rewarded by their effort, praise for their effort, chose the most difficult things. And they outperformed. So don't label yourself with these nouns. And either let your, yourself off the hook by saying, I'm not that kind of person who can do those kinds of things because I'm stupid. Or let yourself off the hook of, I'm smart, and so you never actually do anything difficult so that you can keep thinking that you're smart. Don't label yourself with nouns and adjectives. Focus on the verbs. You want to be a hard worker. You want to uh, lean into doing difficult things. You want to have effort. When we give in to these indifferences, that is when we let our feelings rule the day, when we distract ourselves, what does that get us? It actually gets us more pain, more difficulty more of what we had before. Has anyone overcome and accomplished something by not doing it? Has anyone? Can we run from those things and hide from them forever? No. 
If you don't deal with a small leak in your bathroom today, what will happen in three years? Is it a smaller problem? If you don't deal with the clank in the engine today, what happens in three months? Is it a smaller problem? <laughs> no. <laughs> That's reality. We live in reality. Our lives are within reality. And our difficulties are no different than those difficulties. When we don't deal with them, when we distract ourselves from them, when we become indifferent towards them by all of these mental distortions, they don't get smaller. They get a whole heck of a lot bigger and even more difficult to deal with. And so, pain has a purpose. As Lewis said, it's the universal language. It is God's megaphone to rouse a deaf world. We want exaltation without suffering and death. God gives us exaltation through suffering and death. St. Paul said, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. There is no exaltation without humiliation. Romans 5 tells us the same. It tells us what we have to look forward to, but we want to jump over the thing that produces it. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Through him, we have also obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Not only that, but we rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and hope does not put us to shame. What is it that makes the difference between the soil that produces nothing and the good soil. They produce it with patient endurance. They 
produce it through difficulties. It's not as though they don't encounter the thorns and the thistles. It is not as though the ravens, the birds of the air, don't try to pluck the seed, which gets plucked because they do not understand. No, they come. Those birds come to that soil in the parable of the sower. Those thorns are there, but they produce fruit by patient endurance. They shoo the birds away. They pull the thorns and the thistles. They garden. They endure. So pain has a purpose. It is a godly purpose. But first, before we see that purpose, what God intends to do and use through that, we have to deal with first things first. The crises don't build character. They revealed it. We have to deal with who we are right then and there. What our knee-jerk reaction tends to be. How we typically deal with things when they are difficult or uncomfortable or unpleasant or painful. But God has a purpose for them. And it is for your good, even as the death of Christ was for your good. So do not lose hope. Do not distract yourselves or become indifferent towards them. Because God's not going to take them away. Not like that. He wants you to have them for his good goals and for his good purpose. So that at the end, there can be an exaltation, not only of Christ, but of us as well. In the Lutheran Witness, uh, you can see or you can find uh, Dr. Adam Francisco talking about those things swirling around in the spirit of the age. Um, I, I, to my knowledge, I don't think we've actually come out with like any CTCR document or anything like that. Uh, it is a topic of conversation, though, throughout the Synod that many faithful pastors and even laity are seeking to deal with. So you can find some of those things on, well, on the Gottesdienst uh, webpage, their blog. They will often deal with some of those things. Um, but it's, we also have to come to grips with, while it looks different now, it's not really that new. I mean, it has new things to it, but our synod, if you read really a lot of the old Missouri pastors who are still writing in German, uh, they dealt with how to face the spirit of the age, what to do in terms of uh, keeping in mind what our children are being taught either in public schools and then what they're not getting 
by not having a Christian education. What you need to do, not only to contradict what they're hearing, but also what you need to do to build up. And so part and parcel of you know, how to approach some of these things is in the home, around, as my father-in-law always said, and when I would get focused on, you know, the synods, the synods going to hell, the world's going to hell. You know, when I'd get kind of really uh, dark about those things, he'd always say, uh, Jason, you got to focus on your own living room. You got to focus on your own dining room table. And you need to be present there. And so part of it is just being aware that there are things that are contrary to the Bible. And so you not only have to be able to say, this is wrong, but you also have to continually build them up on what is right. Okay? So you have to continually build on what to love, not just what to hate. Both of those things need to happen. It was not always so, I think, in the Synod. Uh, But we are coming out of a time, I think, where, uh, at least I know, when I was taught what preaching was, it was not primarily taught as teaching. Teaching not only about, you know, what sins are, but even teach it teaching how to live a Christian life, going into the exhortation to do these kinds of good works or have these kinds of practices. When I was taught preaching, it was solely, or that was my understanding, I, I could have missed something, which is possible. Uh, but my recollection of being taught how to preach was you tell them that they're bad, you show them their sin, and then you Tell them they're forgiven for that in Christ, and that was the sum. To- that was my. That's my impression. Looking back, the sum total of how I was taught to preach. So, if you have forty years of that, it takes us a while to figure out. Especially when we start reading how Walther preached or how Luther preached, that that's not how they preached. They didn't preach just by saying you're a sinner and God loves you in Christ. They taught also what this life in Christ now looks like. And they used the scripture to reprove not only actions, but wrong wrong doctrines. And then they used the scriptures to teach correct doctrines, the right way to think about those things. So it was thinking in terms of both doctrine, like what we believe, what we think about, what we hold true, and life, what we're supposed to do now because of that. And I think we're coming out of that to a certain extent. It's still with us, but we're still coming out of it. And the more that we interact with to see kind of the world gone mad and how our churches in some ways don't look that much different than the world or the church in general, let me say, not just the Missouri Synod. And we're recognizing that they have that we, as the people of God, have not received that kind of instruction 
of this is not just what we believe, but this is how we live. Does that make sense? There is a spirit of coddling in, I think, America, right? Where we, we, drown, uh, we drown our pains with medicines or we self-medicate uh, with alcohol or other drugs. I mean, if you just look at the, the opioid crisis within the United States and even my own town, this, this, is, uh, this demonstrates that we have a sloth issue on hand, that we, we, we have coddled our minds. And this is part and parcel of, uh, there's a great book by um, Jonathan Haidt, and I can't remember the other author, called The Coddling of the American Mind, uh, where he goes into how safe spaces, kind of the modern woke agenda, has made us all very, very weak and unable to deal with difficult things, right? I mean, I'm, I think about my grandfather, uh, you know, who went through the Depression. And, um, it, you know, if I were to ask him, you know, do you feel like going to work today? Uh, or, you know, how do you feel? He just would not even compute on how to answer that. He would say, you know, maybe, you know, my big toe hurts or, you know, something like that. But if I asked him, you know, like, you know, why did he go, you know, why did he do what he did? He'd just pull out his wallet and show his picture of his family. It was a, it was a time that did not discuss like how I felt about these things. It was, I'm a dad and a husband. And this is my duty. It doesn't matter. I'm just going to go get stuff done. Um, and our modern desire to, to make everything meaningful or to have a good feeling about it, I think part of that is it's like it's coddling us so that we are always looking for those types of things instead of just taking responsibility and doing the thing. But this is what you find in the table of duties or consider your place in life in light of the Ten Commandments. What has God actually called you to do and to be? And if you go to the catechism and look up at the table of duties, are you a preacher or are you a hearer? All right, well, I'm a, he I'm a preacher and a hearer. So I've got to do, I got to do double duty. Uh, you only got to do half of it. Uh, I'm, a, uh, I'm a father. I'm a husband, right? So I have particular duties things that I have to do that God has given me to do. And I need to be focusing on those things. And they are broad. So it doesn't tell you specific things, but you have to make sure that you're actually doing those things. Are you training up your child in the way that he should go? Not just, so in other words, where do you want him to go? Do you want him to go to the Hall of Fame? Do you want him to go to Harvard? Or do you want him to go to heaven? That goal should dictate how you're training him up. Right? Do you view uh, or, or your interactions at work? Uh, you know, you don't want to steal from your boss and you want to 
to be diligent in those activities. You want to be noticed for no matter what he does or gives you, you do it without complaint. You just get the job done. I, I love it when someone says to me, like, I don't do the greatest work, whether it's um, woodworking or writing or anything that I do. It's not the greatest work, but I love when they, they say something like, you know, you give him something and he just does it. He just gets it done. Like, I'm not the most brilliant person in the world. I'm not stupid. But one of the things that I can do, I can just get things done. And I, I can eventually put aside all of the pain to, to do things. And I love that. I love being praised for that. And so considering your life in light of the Ten Commandments, where God has placed you, are you doing what God has called you to do? That's the first and foremost. What is it that God has actually called you to do? And make that list. Like it takes some thought. So often we get just kind of in ruts and we just do whatever's in front of us. But are we actually concentrating on what God has called us to do? What will actually what we will actually be held account on to do? accountable for doing. We need to do a little more thinking on that front, right? And and say, this is primary. And then fill all the rest of the things in. Got to put the big rocks in first, and then you can fill it up with sand. <laughs>